Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Okay, I know this phrase is overworked, but it really applies here. Kara Swisher is a, a force of nature, a columnist for the New York Times, host of two top-rated podcasts, Sway and Pivot, co-founder of Recode, and longtime convener of globally watched tech conferences. She was one of the earliest and most authoritative journalists covering the tech revolution and all of its implications. She's also been a fellow this quarter at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, something near and dear to me. Kara Swisher is an unending font of insights and opinion, but she also has a truly remarkable personal story. I sat down with her earlier this week to talk about all of it, and here's our conversation. Tara, it's uh, great to be with you. There's so much about the world that you've covered Mm -hmm. for much of your life that impacts on the world that I've been involved in for much of my life yes, that indeed. scares the crap out of me. Yeah. And I, I'm coming to you for, for at maybe clarity, maybe solace. I don't know. But yeah. we, we, we will get to all of that. But uh, you are a force out there. And I, and I want to talk about how you became the force you mm-hmm. are. Sure. Uh, starting with uh, the story of your family. And, oh, uh, my family. Wow. Um, wow. That takes me back. <laughs> I'm pretty old. Yes. Um my dad, uh, you know, I grew up in tri-state area, uh, D- D- and, um, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey area, essentially moving around that area. My dad was in the Navy and had just left the Navy and he died of a cerebral hemorrhage when I was five. Yeah. So it yeah. really impacted me quite a bit. And my brothers, I had two brothers, uh, older and a younger, and my mom remarried. Uh, and my stepfather was a very successful uh, business person, a uh, technology person, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, we just lived in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up there, went to school, um, and graduated from high school. I'm actually doing the high school commencement this year. It's very exciting. Nice. Yeah. But nice, l- let me finally. take you back. I can't sure. let you go. I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, first of all, your dad was from West Virginia, right? He Is was. That- yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From Morgantown. But there's Swishers all over West Virginia. They're, it's lousy in the hills there. There's lousy with Swishers. And where was your mom from? Where was her family uh, pe- from? Up, uh, Pennsylvania, Scranton, the Scranton mm-hmm. area. My grandfather and how was did, a And how did they meet? Oh, she he was at medical school at Jefferson, and she was at um, she was a medical secretary there at the school, worked for the dean, and he just fell in love with her and, you know, kept asking her out until she found him irritating and then... <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know that's that, how I know she that tells pattern, that story. But, um, essentially. I, I want uh, to ask you about losing your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read this piece that you wrote years and years ago in the Washington yes. Post, yeah. and I was so moved by that. Thank you. Uh, uh, you know, I, I lost my dad young as well, uh, mm-hmm. older than you, but I was still 
a teenager when he died and mm -hmm. it you know it touched me particularly because of my own experiences but mm -hmm. um but tell me a little bit about that about that day and well, you know, I was five, so I don't have enormous memories. I mean, even though I do, because I have young children, I've had young children and I have another yes. daughter and she yes. knows me really well at one and a half years old. So I, one of the things that was really, to me, that really impacted me a lot is when my oldest son was five and me thinking about, he knew me incredibly well at five. So I obviously knew my dad really well. I just don't remember it, which is which part of me feels like I wish I could have a computer where I could call up those memories, right? So I could go, oh, I remember that. And I remember, that. but you know, you don't have a whole lot of memory uh, for much of your life, actually, for much of your early life. And so I think, I, you know, I vaguely remember he, he was very young and he had a, a headache. I remember the night before he had a headache. And then the next morning he didn't get up. He usually made us breakfast on Sunday and he couldn't get out of bed. And so they came and you know, broke down the door and took him away. His door was locked. Why was his door locked? He was just trying to sleep. And we used to always oh, go see. in. He has three small uh, kids. You know, yeah, he, was, yeah. no, he was writing can, a speech. That. And he, uh, I guess he locked the door. And then they had to break it down. And I remember that. I remember the breaking of the door. And I remember them. I don't remember him being moved, interestingly enough. But I, I went back into my room with all that noise. And so we never saw him again after that. I mean, I don't remember the last time we spoke. I guess I just, I can't remember it. Um, but, you know, he put us, he was a very active parent for that, especially for that era. He was, you know, he put us to bed. He was, um, he took care of us quite a lot for someone who was working and also was sort of the man. Back then it was a little different. My mom wasn't mm -hmm. working, but he did a lot of the parenting, which I think was interesting. I recall that very, very vividly. It's funny you say, trying to recall memories. I mean, I'm, I, I can't summon up what my dad's voice sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. And, I don't know. Uh, you know, there are things like that that haunt yeah. me. Yeah, you uh, wish you taped them in a lot of ways. I know it sounds crazy, but today people have all these, like when my grandmother, who I was very close to, I should have taped her. You know what I mean? Like at the time you could have taped them talking and stuff like that. But today you can actually see people long after they're gone, right? Like you can, there's physical digital photographs, there's recordings, yeah. people put everything online. And I have like a couple of photographs and they're like ectochrome yeah. photographed of my dad and that's it. That's the entire, you know, and I have some, I found a box of his, um, his, uh, his grades and some pictures of him as a boy scout and, a, and an Eagle scout and some with his friends. And so I, everything is ephemeral. Everything is physical that I have of his. Yeah. You know, his glasses where he bit them and stuff like that. But nothing digital, which is kind of funny, unless I digitize it. And then you have the thoughts of what, what might have been. Yeah. Uh, you, you wrote uh, about uh, the things that, that you missed, empty, or you wrote about empty Father's Days, an absent mm -hmm. parent at school plays school, uh, good grades without his pat on the back at prom mm -hmm. with no lectures on being safe. And what else was missed? The love, I suppose, most of all. How would I know really what was gone since it was never there. Yeah. How, how did that, um, how did that affect you? How you, you know, you, you are a very distinctive personality. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think it, I was before that, but um, yeah. I, I think, I, I think it makes you recognize. And I, I always look at, there's a Steve Jobs 
thing talking about death. He's famous, most famous speech he gave at Stanford. He was, you know, he was sick for several times before he actually died and and Mm -hmm. got well, actually. And so I always go back to Reedy because I think it was a really articulate way to phrase it, which is that many people do not live their lives as if they're going to die. I do. I really have a sense of death much stronger and for most of my life is that any time anybody person could be taken away from you, including yourself. And so I have lived my life pretty much like I'm on not borrowed time, but that that I'm aware of the time. I'm super aware. And so I don't tend to waste time um, like on stupid stuff. I'm always (laughs) like, oh, no, I'm not going to worry about that. And so I think it does. There's actually lots of studies about this, that people whose parents die at a young age below 20 are highly functional. I know that sounds crazy. And the younger you are, the more functional you are because it's as if half of your, when you're five or below, if your parent died, that's half your life, right? You don't have a lot of friends. You don't have a lot of acquaintances. You don't have, so imagine right now if you were living and half the people you know were dead, half, like you'd be like devastated. And so what happens when you lose a parent at a young age, from what I understand is that people become, they they survive it and then they're like, well, I survived that. So nothing's bad. Like nothing bothers me. I'm, I have a very hard time being bothered by anything. Like it's really kind of, you know, and the negative side too, it's really hard to make me, um, you know, it's, you, you don't form attachments as much and you also, um, you tend to slough off pretty much anything because you survive the worst thing, at least in a child's mind. Now there's ter- more terrible things that could happen to children, obviously, but you, you survive very, something very difficult and you're, you're not fine, but you survive it. And so you tend to have an attitude towards life that's a little different. I'll tell you, when my dad died, um, mm-hmm. I was sort of estranged from my mom. And uh, oh, I, I, the thing that it instantly, what I felt was, your childhood's over. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're self-sufficient now. You've got to take care for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that, you know, that, that comes along with it, uh, too. You, you, it's interesting. You, I, I, later in your life... Because you are someone who doesn't waste a minute. You were en route to a uh, conference that mm-hmm. you, your digital conference that you sponsor every year. Mm-hmm. And you had a stroke. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. It was the one in China. We were, it wasn't the annual one. It was one we didn't, it was called Asia D. It was another, we had offshoots, media and mobile uh-huh. and stuff like that. And so we decided that China was going to be a critical player. This is way back in, in yeah. digital. And Good call there. there I know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, we were paying attention. And so we wanted to do one in Asia and we did it in Hong Kong. And, you know, we pulled from Korea and Japan and mm-hmm. the surrounding area, but it was principally about China. You know, we actually... Uh, had top Apple executives there, a bunch of people. And on the flight over, I sat and coached because Rupert Murdoch is cheap, is a cheap bastard, as we all know. <laughs> you were uh, working for the journal. At the yeah, time. I was working for the journal. And uh, he had just bought it. And I, and I didn't get up. And it was a long call flight. You know, to Hong Kong is not a short flight. I'm sure yes. you've been on that flight. Yes. Um, and two sort of heavy set guys were sitting next to me. So I didn't get out of my chair. I didn't drink enough water. Everything. I did every like everything you're not they tell you not to do. I did. Um, and then I got to Hong Kong and had a, um, uh, you know, I was awake still. I was kind of in the weird time zone. And I started writing a story about Yahoo. I was still reporting stuff. And I I was eating something and it fell out of my mouth. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And I'd suffered from headaches for years. I mean, mm-hmm. migraines and things like that and tingling and things. But I, I got like this tingling in my in my side of my mouth and then I couldn't speak and but I wasn't with anybody and so I was like I like that and it was weird and I was like what's happening and I was totally functional in that I took a shower 
I was like, oh, I better take a shower and go down, go upstairs to see if someone could, because I couldn't call anybody, right? Like yeah. you can't like speak. I couldn't call down to the front desk. I was like, ah, ah, ah. and so I texted my brother, who's a doctor, and said something's wrong. I'm like, this is weird. This is weird. I'm not be able to speak. I have a fa- essentially it's aphasia, and so I went upstairs to this beautiful breakfast place in the. We were at the Grand Hyatt in Hong Kong, beautiful hotel, amazing mm-hmm. breakfast. Um, and by the time I got upstairs, I could talk. Like I could talk like, hi, how you doing? Like that, like you had dental mm-hmm. surgery. And I thought, oh, I'm fine. I just had a really weird migraine, just a weird, you know, that was weird. And my brother, who was in California at the time, immediately, pretty quickly was like, you need to get to a hospital. You just, you're having a stroke. And I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm like in my 40s. That's kind of crazy. And um, and he said, no, you need to get to a hospital. You need right now, like now, like yesterday, you need to be there. And so I got on the on the um, I got in a cab and I went over to a hospital. And indeed, that's what was happening. He said, get an, an MRI, not a CAT scan. One of them, mm-hmm. whichever one, get mm-hmm. the one you're, they, they want to give you one, make them give you the other. And I was uh, it was interesting because I was in a, a Chinese hospital and excellent medical care, by the way. Um, and everyone was wearing masks. And I remember thinking, oh, how interesting masks. They wear them here. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like everybody, all the all the personnel were wearing them at all times. And um, and the guy told me, uh, you had a stroke and you need to be hospitalized immediately. And I was like, what? Like, And of course I was like, come on, that's ridiculous. But I, the only time I ever got particularly upset was thinking about my kids and yeah. me dying. And that's, I, then I broke down. I like, didn't, I was like, I'm fine. I'm good. Like, no problem. And then I was like, oh my God, this, you know, my kid was like that age was young. Well, one of my yes. kids was that age. And I was like, no, 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 this can't happen again. And so, uh, so I really got upset, but then I was fine. Like hours later, I was fine. Yeah. I was like, I, I was speaking like this and I was not, it did not, um, the body is remarkable in many ways. It's sort of, you could see the picture of the blood clot in the brain and then you could see the blood going around it i thought that was like amazing i was like fat i was riveted to it it's like oh look it found a way like it found a way so i could say stupid things (laughs) and then i did i did i did a video i did a video and then Al Gore from came. the hospital. Yeah, I did a video for your and then, conference. Yeah, for my conference, and then like a couple of the people go. Show and, like, must Al, go on. I yeah, the show must go on. And, and Al Gore came and visited me in the hospital. It was like, who is this person? And then Jerry Yang, who was a big hero in Hong Kong, who ran Yahoo at the time, he came and visited me. And I think Jack Ma came. Like all these, and everyone's like, who is this girl? I'm I'm very important. I'm very. Important. <laughs> your uh, your mom really called you Tim. Tempesta, 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 yeah, Tempesta, yeah, Italian for storm, storm, Uh, (laughs) and this was not the QAnon kind. Just when you you were a little girl, yes, uh, when you were a little girl. So you said, you know, these qualities of mine, Mm -hmm. they were formed before anything happened with my dad. They're they're innate qualities. They are. They just were stressed. They were made more. You walked out of a class in grammar school mm-hmm. because you thought the reading was not challenging enough. And yes. you told the teacher she was wasting your time. <laughs> wasting my t- I said, I knew this. Please, please call me when you have something new to teach me here because this is dull. <laughs> what, what is it about you? What I is always it do about that. you? I that- always do that, Dave. I don't know. I just leave. When I do that with jobs, too. I'm like, I've had enough here. And I'm, and I'm not rude about it. I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't like obnoxious. I was like, this is not working for me. I think I'd like to go to... I'd like, I'm, I, I have other interests I need to move on. And I think that's a really good... It's, it's kind of entrepreneurial in that way, in that I've conducted my career. As I left, 
like big jobs to try something different. And I think that's just a quality that I have compared to other people. I don't know. Why. It's also, it's also your, as a journalist, it's kind of your brand. I mean, yeah. getting, getting in people's grill. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't care. I don't care. But you wouldn't find people saying that I'm rude. I think people, it's really interesting because I was just looking at, there was a New York Magazine piece about me saying I'm feared and liked, which is kind of interesting. I, I take issue with the feared part because I don't think I'm scary. I think I ask, like, you just, you saw that interview I did with the parlor CEO, which mm-hmm. ended badly for him in the end. The interview was really problematic for him and got him fired, I, I believe. Um but but I wasn't. If you listen to it, I'm not unfair. I'm not rude. I'm quite polite, and I just I just ask question after question after question. I don't think that's rude. I think, and I don't think it's scary. I just think it's the question I would ask, and I think that's for some reason um, a lot. Even though press is considered really snarky, etc. I think there's a difference between being snarky, which I think is useless because it doesn't get you the answers you want, and actually asking direct questions. And then they either answer or they don't. And then people can see what they're made of. That's that's what I do. I don't think it's mm-hmm. mean. No, and that's the appropriate role mm-hmm. uh, of a journalist. Or I don't understand this. Often I'm saying, what did you just say? That doesn't make any sense. Pa- treat me like I'm an idiot and explain it. And most times people are on their talking points, as you know, because you teach them their talking points. Um, but they're on their talking points and they don't want to get off of them, but they actually do want to get off of them because they actually want to be heard correctly. M- many people do. I've lived in both worlds. So I spent mm-hmm. the time as a journalist trying to mm-hmm. get to the core of, of what people are actually thinking. And I've also worked with uh, with, with politicians who at times have to say less than they yeah. should or government officials. We just saw this, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw George Stephanopoulos's interview with uh, the president where he mm-hmm. said, do you think uh, Putin's a killer? killer. And, and the president probably made the mistake of accepting the premise mm-hmm. and, and, and said, yeah, I, I think he is. Well, that's an international kind of oh, well, incident you know so you've got to kind of like uh, <laughs> what but but the thing about journalists so what is, he is he's a terrible killer of course on, yeah please. i know that's but enough with being polite don't... to putin i don't care that one i'm good let's have an international incident with this guy what else is he gonna do he's like denuded our democracy forget it i'm sure that created heartburn for uh, oh, well. his uh, for <laughs> for his team good heartburn but the thing about journalism is, and I want to ask you why you became one. I know you mm-hmm. want to be a spy at some point. I did. I did. I wanted to go into the military, as as many people I have said many times. And uh, I was gay, and so I couldn't because, thank you, President Clinton, don't ask, don't tell, which is terrible. Um, what a terrible, terrible thing to do to people. Um, all of it was terrible, but that was a particularly cynical yeah. way to deal with it. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to be in the military. I couldn't be in the military. My dad, I was very proud of the military and I really wanted to like go to boot camp. I want to do the whole thing, but I didn't want to do it under the premise of a lie, essentially. And so that was not possible. And I really wanted to do military intelligence. I thought it would have been really interesting. And and then I went to the Foreign Service School at Georgetown, which was, you know, it's a feeder into the State Department or the CIA mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so then I thought I would be an analyst in the CIA. I wasn't going to be like running around doing cloak and dagger work. I was going to analyze because I was good at it. I was good at... Um, um, I think it's my greatest quality as a reporter is I really, I can build scenarios. I'm like, hmm, what should happen here? I think a lot like that. Like, and I actually, someone was like, how are you such a good beat reporter? I'm like, I'm a good guesser compared, like I sit there and I go, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And then I pursue the most logical 
version of whatever. And it often turns out to be what's happening. Um, so I wanted to be in the military. How do you, let, me, let me ask you a question. How do you, sure. how do you deal with it when it turns out not to be what you Oh, I just go, I move on. I don't write it until I figure it out. I just, mm-hmm. it's like a puzzle. And so I don't know if you saw Three Days of the Condor, the original one oh, with yeah. Robert uh-huh. Redford. That's yes. how, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sit there and say, here's what, if you put in this input and this put in this, you know, you could do it with computers now, but you used to do it yourself. Like if this, then this, and then you would follow along the, the, the chain. And so I spent a lot of time doing that as a reporter. I'd be like, what is Yahoo buying for Yahoo back then? And then I'm like, here's the 10 companies. Here's why this particular CEO might pick this one. Here's who they know. Like I would do a lot of that. And I think a lot of military intelligence, not just military, a lot of intelligence is about taking data and making intelligent guesses about what someone's going to do. Right? That's what I wanted to do. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I read somewhere that you said that you knew that you were gay when you were three, three or four years four. old. Yeah, yeah, four. That's like really young. I yeah, mean, it is. I think a lot more people, they see, things are so different now. It's so fluid. Everyone's so fluid. That word they use all the time. It wasn't that fluid back then, or maybe it was, or you weren't allowed to articulate. This is the early fluid. 70s. Yeah, no. and uh, so or I sixties really sixties, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was really um, aware of it, uh, very much so. I was like, mm, okay, this is I like ladies. I like, you know, and I mean, I wasn't a sexual thing. It just was mm-hmm. like I, pref- I was very aware I was not straight for a very long time. Now I had boyfriends. I had a great boyfriend in high school. It was wonderful. Um, I had an eighth grade boyfriend. I went to proms, and you know, I lived in the world as it was, and I didn't necessarily feel particularly bad about that. Like a lot of gay people suffer and terrible, ter- terribly. I liked going out with guys. I was fine. Um, but I really knew I was gay for the longest time. And you just couldn't, you, there was very little literature you could read. There was no internet. Um, and there was no way to really find out a lot unless you did enormous amounts of, um, you know, skulking around bookstores in New York City and stuff like that. But you really couldn't, there wasn't a lot. People were not, never, t- I can't believe I say this, but no one ever talked about it. You remember, no one yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. People knew, yeah. but especially some men, but um, lesbians were kind of invisible in many ways, except you, if you were absolutely out. When did you come out? And well, how did, in how my twenties, badly, your mom who, who <laughs> badly. Was a- Catholic and she's not religious. She she only she pulls it out when she needs it for, for whatever purposes <laughs> she's using. Um, uh, I used to say church would fall if she entered it, but she goes to church. She's whatever. She's whatever she is. She can, she can make her own choices. I, I, uh, I was sort of forced out. My mom was asking who I was having dinner with. And I was at, at the time I was dating someone. It was for my birthday. And I said, I'm going to dinner with this person. She's like, well, why don't you go with a lot of friends? Why don't you have a boyfriend? Like the same thing. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, I couldn't have any more boyfriends, you know, and I, which I stopped going out with boys in college, essentially. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm gay. Like, let's stop this ridiculous. She knew I, you know, it was so, it was so exhausting, the lying and the the skulking and the hiding. It's so bad. And so I just came out and I called my whole family. I knew I had to get ahead of my mom because she wanted to win that particular PR war for that one. And I called my grandmother. My grandmother was fine. She was like, Oh, I knew it. I was like, my brothers were great. Um, And so I made sure everybody understood what was happening. And then it was, um, it, 
you know, it wasn't easy. She, my mother was the principally difficult person in the whole situation. She didn't treat the people I dated the same. She did very typical. It wasn't like the worst, most onerous thing, but it was essentially being treated like a second class citizen. And so I, I would always do things like when she bought Christmas presents, she would, she'd buy a Christmas present that was better from one of my brothers, like my brother had a lot of girlfriends, like whatever, this girl just showed up and I'd been going out some of her year and she bought a less good present. And I'd be like, take it back and get an equal one. Like, I mean, I'm just <laughs> terrible. And I was like, I, I, I always said to my mom, I don't negotiate with terrorists. Like you're a terrorist and you're wrong. And so you're going to treat me. I demanded that she treat me equally. Um, and including up until when I had kids. Um, we, I had a terrible story written about me when I was pregnant in the New York Post. Thank you, you fucking asshole, Rupert Murdoch. Um, that was in page six uh, about my um, my being, that Jeff Bezos was the father of my kid. This crazy, like page six, the J-Lo position, I always call it the top of the page six. And all about, they were trying to get at the Wall Street Journal. And so they decided to do it via me for because that's the way these people operate. And I had to tell my mom I was pregnant by because she was a reader of the New York Post before she read uh-huh. it on page six. It was terrible. It was, of course, she said, what did you do to cause this? I was like, are you crazy? They're homophobic fucks. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, my mom was not easy. She's gotten a lot better. She says. How is she with your with your uh, your kids? Oh, my God. She's like, they're my favorite. You know, she loves she's, you know, like the country. She's moved forward, you know, uh-huh. and every now and then with gay stuff, she hasn't had a backward walk very much. Look, every now and then stupid things like she she voted for Rick Santorum. And I forbid her. I said she couldn't come to Thanksgiving if she voted for Rick Santorum because he was trying to take away kids from their adoption, a gay adoption. And so I'm like, look, this affects my kids directly. You cannot vote for him. She was from Pennsylvania. And so she's like, okay, I won't. And then she did. And so I tossed her out of Thanksgiving one year. No kidding. Is she, did she work her way back? Oh, you know, you know, she can't, she can't quit those people. She loves Fox News. And uh, we had a back and forth about um, like a lot of people. Uh, my, my mom's not down QAnon Avenue, essentially, but mm-hmm. she watches Fox and, and was very, uh, very much in that camp and thought uh, COVID was the flu. So my brother, who's a doctor, and I had spent a lot of time not getting her to go out to restaurants. It was quite a a lift. Thank you so much, Fox News. Um, and then and to say it's not the flu and it's dangerous and mm-hmm. it's not overblown by the media and this and that. And then she recently, she's she still watches it, but it, like, you know, it depends on which friend of her she's hanging out with. Um, but one of the things was when the election happened, she thought that Trump lost. And four weeks later, she was like, it's been stolen. And I was like, it's crazy. That's what scares the crap out of me. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just the just, you know, the whole thing, the whole Mark Twain thing about, well, I can travel around the world, and you know, before the truth gets its boots on or halfway around yeah. the world. Compared to other people, I grew up great. I grew up in a beautiful town. I had beautiful schools. I had very loving family. Um, not every moment was perfect, but it was, you know, I was better than a lot of people. Let me ask you about your your turn toward journalism. I know you mm-hmm. you did some of that in high school. You worked on the Georgetown newspaper, the apparently with Ron Klain. Huh? Apparently, your... he has the year wrong. He says nineteen eighty, but I was in high school in nineteen eighty. But uh, eighty one, I don't even remember him. I'll be honest with you. He did not. <laughs> <laughs> he did not. 
I don't have. I was like, did you? There was this little irritating news editor. It must have been him. I, it must have been him who was like bothering me. I did mostly writing because I won the writing award that year. Yeah, my freshman I, know. Year. I, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I don't remember you. I left you yeah. behind, Ron Klain. You've done okay. Were you always a good writer? Was that a... Yes, 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 100%. I didn't write in high school for the newspaper. I was a yearbook editor, but uh, which is a position of enormous power in case you're interested. Um, yeah. I was, uh, I was, I, I just wrote, I was always a writer. I seldom was an editor. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was good at uh, finding things people like to read about. I think I, that's what I was good at. Not as good a writer as I am. A, I pick subjects that people like to read about. You went to Columbia. You did a stint at the Washington City paper, which has mm-hmm. kind of a fabled history as yes, a spawner indeed. of David great Carr, talents. Lots of people. Uh, uh, Tanahasi Coates and Jay mm-hmm. Tapper and others. Yeah. Um, but uh, you landed working for John McLaughlin. I did. Which oh is a God. really interesting Terrible. and kind of bewildering piece of Me biographical too. data. I know. Isn't that weird? And I testified against him. Uh, John McLaughlin was sort of, he was he was right-wing cable before right-wing cable existed. He wasn't right-wing. He was conservative. Like, let's, let me just say, today he'd be considered like Mitt Romney at this moment. Like, he was not, you know, he, he was he was the beginning of the Fox News phenomenon, the Bill O'Reilly. He was Bill mm-hmm. O'Reilly before Bill O'Reilly. He screamed. He, brought, he made politics reductive and on scales and done it. He was Twitter before Twitter. Yeah, he was, like, part, he was sort of a forerunner the infotainment industry, yeah. I should yeah. say. But he was, you know, he was Powerful. He, was, he was solidly conservative. Uh, mm-hmm. co- you, you, you ghost wrote his column I did. for the National I Review. Sure yeah, I did. I was good at that. How was that? Well, you know, he hired all young people and then proceeded to abuse them, some of them sexual abuse, sexual uh, harassment, actually. So, you know, he just he was one of these people who was, you know, I when Trump came around, I'm like, I know him. That's John McLaughlin. You know what I mean? The same narcissistic, egomaniacal, uh, shameless, without any ethics kind of person. Um, and so I had a big experience at a very young age with someone like that. And so I wrote his column for him. And he was always really... Um, he did understand how evil he was on some level and how much power he had. And he always talked about the power he held at the time as the Reagan administration. And he was a powerful, he was a powerful part of it being on his show or talk, being talked about. It was critically important. He had Jules uh, Germond and Robert Novak, the dark prince. Um, And they were important. They had columns and it was, it was, it was where cable became. And he sort of pioneered that. He was a former Jesuit priest. People don't know that, but he was a terrible person. He was weird and controlling. He used to try to make me make him toast. We had a whole fight. That's going to go in my book at some point, but he tried to make me make him, he liked to demean people and I refused to be demeaned. And it was a constant test with him. Uh, which I kind of liked. You quit and you testified against him in the in the in a yes. sexual abuse case. Yes, yeah, he sexually harassed a young woman that I physic I saw him do it, and you know what they did is relied on. This is pre Anita Hill. They relied on people being quiet, especially among the right wing, the conservative groups. And I wasn't conservative, so I was like, I don't care. He's like, you'll never have a career with the Heritage Foundation. I'm like, <laughs> oh no, not that! <laughs> Please don't throw me in the briar patch. So I testified. There's. A great story about you, a chance encounter you had with him mm-hmm. years later. Tell me about that. Well, we were at a party and I had testified against him and then he paid off the lady because that's what rich, irritating, gra- gro- gropy men do back then. Um, and so he uh, he paid this woman off and 
never got to trial. So I, I did a deposition. It was really awful deposition. It was really quite astonishing. Like they, they, you're gay. You hate men. I was like, no, I hate this man um, before what he did to her. But um, so he, uh, and then I was like, why? Well, I, I remember in a deposition, they're like, I used an old joke, which was, why would I hate men? I don't have to sleep with them. Like, <laughs> I like men. Men are great. I love things. Men are fantastic. So um, so we, we ran into each other at a party. I used to cover parties for the Washington Post. I started off way at the bottom wrong. And, um, you know, he was still a figure for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then it got kind of pathetic in the end. As I, I actually told him that's how it was going to end for him. But that I'd get more powerful and he'd lose power because that's the way it was. That was the way it was going to work. And he, he, um, he came up to me and he had that big voice. And he's like, Kara Swisher, you know, that weird voice he mm-hmm. had. And, he said, I just want to say in this town where people stab you in the back, you stab me in the front. And I said, anytime, you son of a bitch. And he was like, well, good seeing you. And I was like, good seeing you. It was just like, you know, I have this proclivity to be around really evil men like Rupert Murdoch and John McLaughlin and stuff like that. You uh, you mentioned the Post. You were a stringer yeah. for the Post yeah, uh, at Georgetown. And you, you made a... Uh, a typical Swisherian introduction mm-hmm. to the uh, Metropolitan editor there. Yeah, when Larry you were a When you were a, a, a stringer, you, you thought they covered a story wrong. Badly. It was full of errors. It was bad. Yeah. So you were a kid in college and you told them that. Yeah, I went down there. He said, come down and say that to my face. I said, this sucks. Like, it's full of errors. Like, you <laughs> spelling errors. Like, what is wrong with you? I love the Washington Post. And of course, I wouldn't even, like, I wasn't sophisticated to realize they sent the l- lousiest reporter to the Georgetown event. Like, you know, but I, it was important to me. And so I went, I took the M, whatever, the M2 bus, whatever the bus was that you take from Georgetown down to 15th Street, which is where the Post was. And yeah. I went in and I said, and he goes, say that to my face. And I get there and I'm like, you suck. You sucked in person. You sucked on the phone. And he hired me to be a, you think you could do better? I was like, like every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Sure. And so I ended up being a stringer, which got me the clips that got me into Columbia. So it was, you know, he was great. Actually, it was a smart idea to hire call it good writers for newspapers to cover. Yeah. Um, like, cause they just didn't have enough staff. Of course, it never occurred to me that who cares what happens on college campuses, but, um, but they were, it was great. It occurs to me that, uh, Great journalists, by definition, are iconoclasts, are yeah. suspicious of authority, are yeah. un- unafraid to challenge authority. That sort of comes with the territory. If you, if you don't have that quality, you're, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah, I did a lot. Like when I didn't get an internship one year and I was the best one, I was like, um, they kept hiring Harvard people. And I went to Georgetown. I wasn't that bad. And and they, and I was like, I, I remember the person saying, like, I'm like, I should be hired. I'm like better than those people. Like, I'm the one that needs to be hired. Cause I, and I wasn't being like arrogant. It was like factual. I was like, here's my stories. Put them up against them. And, you know, I think they're not used to it. They weren't used to it from a woman for sure. And they didn't, they thought it was amusing. And I think it helped me when I was a young reporter because I was always like, you know, I always say to people, I had a like, think, think of the long view of everything. I was, I remember saying to one guy, this big editor, and he's like, oh, you're very confident, aren't you? Like that's, that's the, that's the code word for a woman to shut up, I think. And I said, yeah, I am, because someday you'll be working for me. So just <laughs> FYI, just giving you the information. So I'd be nice to me because you're going down and I'm going up. Like, like, look at the, you know, at some point. So I'm real nice to the students of University of Chicago, for example, because I realized that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you, have you given them that interview advice too? Did yes. You tell them that? Here's how you get ahead. Well, if you're good, you, you have to be good. Tell the, your prospective boss you're going to have his job someday. You have to be, you can't 
bullshit it though. You have to be actually good. And so that's my advice. You don't make a brag if you can't deliver the goods. That's you, that you have to do. That's we my should point out that Kara's been a, a, a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics that I uh, direct uh, yes. this quarter. And they were wonderful. Changed students. a bunch of lives of great young kids. people with her mentorship there. Um, but you, you obviously made an impression because the Post hired you they did. back years yeah. later, first as no, an intern and then in, the, in, in, yeah. in, in the business yeah. section. But I delivered the mail there. You don't understand. I was like at the bottom rung of the, I worked at night and I delivered the mail for them during the day. You've talked about uh, your mentors there, including mm-hmm. Bill Bradley, uh, Bill Bradley. <laughs> Not Very Bill Bradley. nice basketball playing senator. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great basketball. Ben he was Bradley, a lovely guy. The, the legendary, uh, legendary editor Indeed. there. But tell me yeah. about that. Oh, he was wonderful. Like, you know, he he now he did know who I was by the end. But when I was a, just a kid there, I, I happened on a really big story called about the Haft family. And they owned they were billionaires. There weren't very many billionaires back then. And they owned uh, Track Auto, Dart Drug. They were the big retail family. There used, mm-hmm. Washington used to be the rich people were all the re- whether it was Giant Food, whether it was Heckinger and stuff like that, or Woody's and things like that. But then it got bought up and things changed. And this was a family that started discount drugs, really, just the whole discount yeah. drug movement yes, and yes. very important in, in, in the business history. So I started writing about their fighting. The fight, the family was sort of fighting in sort of this weird King Lear kind of traffic accident. And I got right in the middle of it and started writing about it for the post. And it was really great because they were all colorful, really. The the main guy had a head, had a mane of white hair that he put up, like he had his hair done. (laughs) He had his hair did. And his son had a brown mane of the same hair. And so it was really great. It was a great story. And I recognized it. And it was sort of right after Barbarians of the Gate, which I thought was Mm -hmm. a great book in terms of telling a great business story with like with a lot of like it was fiction, essentially. Yeah. And and so I started writing like that and and it got to be a big story like a because they were fighting they were suing each other there was a gay son there was a crazy daughter there was all this stuff going on like that was nuts. And so I got really close to every single person there and I was like now today and you know it was like a, it was like it was like Dallas or something. And I wrote it like that. And uh, and Bradley loved those stories. And he'd always come in. He's like, what do you got today? Like, what's the... <laughs> he was like hooked. And yeah. it was so like, you're always going to... I'm going to get something for, for Ben Bradley. He's going to be happy. And he's going to ask what I... Oh, I like that today. And so he was just... Uh, just got the sexiest man in the room, period. Like the most yeah. compelling person. Swashbuckling. Everything. Oh, just like... Kind of editor. Yeah. You wanted to kill for him. You want to go and get it and bring it back and show it to him and have him like it. And I never mm-hmm. had that feeling with anybody I've worked with ever since. He was just one of these characters that was not just larger than life, but like he was so elegant. One time I was leaving the post at night. I worked all like I worked all the time and I loved it. I didn't there wasn't yeah. a bit about it yeah. I didn't love. And I was leaving at like ten o'clock at night after finishing a story and he was walking in with Lauren Bacall and they were dressed. He was in a tuxedo <laughs> and she was like dressed to the nines. I guess she was showing her the presses were there, whatever. He was walking in with her. He's like, Hey kid, how you doing? I'm like, I'm great, Ben Bradley in the tuxedo with Lauren Bacall. Like I couldn't like every bit about him was great. And even when he was like 90 or when it, right before he died, I saw him and there was like, it was upstairs at the post and, you know, Don Graham, nicest man on the planet, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd spent time with his mom many years before and stuff like that. All really fantastic people in so many different ways. But he was in a group of people and I swear to God, he, he was the sexiest, most energetic person. And he was about 112 years old and it was just <laughs> like, there was just so much charisma just 
hopping off this guy who was, you know, much older than anybody else and just was a great, he just did. I liked him. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I read that your introduction to the internet as a story or your inspiration for that was actually sparked by love that you had, uh, you were emailing uh, someone you had been dating. Yes, I was going out with. Yeah, who's still a close friend of mine. Yes, yes. I was trying to, my person I was going out with uh, was living in um, Russia. And so she taught me how to use the nascent internet, all these different methodologies of reaching people by email, et cetera, because it was so expensive then to call Russia or anything yes. like that. And so we stayed in touch uh, via the, she had worked for something that was Russian. She was con- talking to people in Russia. And a lot of these technologies were super early. They were sort of around and this and that. And then when David Ignatius, who was the editor of the business section, now he's, yeah. of course, David Ignatius. Yes. Um, Institution, Institu- Mount Rushmore. David kind of Ignatius. Yeah. Yes. Um and uh, he he uh, he said, oh, he knew I wanted to get off the half beat. And he said, do you want to cover this this online services thing? Like there's some company called AOL and there's another one. There was a bunch of uh, because of the, the way the, 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 the hubs of the Internet, there's one in D.C. Um, and the major hubs. And so he, a lot of these Internet companies just started here. And I was like, OK. Sounds good. And I sort of knew about it from this girlfriend and then uh, and ended up, you know, being right here at the beginning of the Internet age. And speaking of which, Al Gore, once again, was right there. Um, you know, he was a senator and he did a lot of the commercialization legislation that commercialized the Internet. He gets ridiculed for having said. They're wrong. Said, uh, yeah. He shouldn't have said it that way, but he was critical. Yeah. I mean, he's not Len Kleinrock who act, and the other people who invented the Internet, really. But he he was critical to – I keep saying – He recognized what it could be. He made the legislation to make it happen, to make it commercialized. The, the Internet you know today is because of legislation by people like Al Gore. Thank you. At what point did you say, damn, this is going to be Medium. big? This is going to be huge. This is the future. Right when did you say, when did you recognize that? Well, I don't know if you remember at the post, if you were back then, there was a teletype machine as you walked in. Do you remember mm-hmm. bike by the window, that kind of thing? And I was like, this is ridiculous. I remember thinking like, what is going on here? And they used to have a, one thing is I was very interested in mobile and they had a computer, they had a phone in a suitcase essentially. And I was like, that's a great idea. They're they're going to be mobile. Yes. They're going to be smaller. I was a Star Trek fan. I was like, this is going somewhere. Why do yeah. we have desk phones? So I was already sort of like, why is this happening? And then I got the the sort of Gordon Gecko phone and stuff like that. And what was really interesting to me, and then we had couplers that we we had a Trash Eighty, they're called, or a Radio Shack computer that we used to put stories in. Do you remember the Trash Eighty? And I was like, this is the way it's going to be. Like, it's going to be digital. And I was I was at a fellowship at Duke um, in, I don't remember the year. And we were, I downloaded a book onto my computer and I was like, oh my God. Like everyone had software before or disks or things. You remember you had a hard disk and something. And as I started using it, I'm like, oh my God, everything's going to be digitized. And I wrote that in the column this week. Everything that came, I was writing about NFTs in this case, non-fungible tokens. I was like, everything that can be digitized will be digitized. And I was like, I said that to myself at the time, like everything, music. And it, it just occurred to me when I got that book and it was a Calvin and Hobbes book, I was like, 
everything will be digital, everything possible. And so I immediately started to be like, this is a big deal. This is, and I went and met everybody. And I was like, this is like the, the creation of the Gutenberg press. This is like television. This is like radio. I was a student of history and communication. And so I was like, this is going to change. If everything can be digitized and put in a small device, it changes every single business in the world and then transportation and then communication and then politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you wrote, a, you wrote a book called How mm -hmm. Steve Case Beat Bill Gates, Nailed the Net Heads and Made Millions in the War for the Web. Right. That was just 18 years ago. Yeah. He was uh, he was the, uh, the the AOL guy. Uh, yeah, he commercialized AOL the is, internet. AOL is, uh, who cares? You know, you, you have to go to the Field Museum to mm -hmm. see. It's still uh, around. Yeah, I know. But not in, it was, you know, it was the titanic force then. It was. The plains are covered with the bodies of pioneers, David. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not in any way belittling uh, the, the accomplishment, but I am noting just the pace of, of all of this and how fast the, the world has changed. And now this is the dominant, you know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, uh, For now. All, but pretty significantly playing havoc in some ways with yes. uh, with our politics, our culture, totally uh, society. Uh, and I'm wondering how you, you know, how you view the this this progression? Well, you know, I think it's just a progression. It's sort of like the young eats its old. I mean, that's how I look at it. And so every every technology is going to eat the technology that came before it. And so one of the things everyone's like going crazy about, I, I was one of the early people worried about Facebook. I was, I was like, this is going to not end well, because I, you know, at, at, at Columbia and at Georgetown, I studied propaganda. And I was that was a big focus for me. I, I was going to live in Eastern Europe and in, in um, in East Germany, I was very aware of what the Chinese government was doing and Russian propaganda. And I was like, this is so good for that. Like, here these people lost the Cold War, the Russians. Now they had tools that they didn't need to buy planes and tanks and yeah, you know, compete with Star Wars. They didn't need it. And I was like, do you see what's going to happen here? This stuff can be so easily manipulated. It's been it's and having met the people from Silicon Valley, they're not doing any due diligence on any of this. They're not running it. So it's these unfettered platforms. And the minute I saw them, I was like, oh. Oh, no, 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 this is not good. And of course, they were in this sort of honeymoon period of, isn't this wonderful how we can all connect? And I, instead of, that's a Star Wars, Star Trek version of life. Like, oh, we're all connecting and it's all good. And I live in a Star Wars universe, which is like the Empire strikes back and it always does. And it always gets control of information or resources or whatever. And so I was, I was very, very early on. Like, this is not, because humans were involved and because politics could be digitized. And that, to me, was the most dangerous thing of all, was politics getting digitized. You were an early Paul Revere on the issue of privacy and yep. data. And I, I don't think am. people appreciate as much as they should that data is at the core of this. Yes, yes, 100%. Uh, that that is where the money is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, and, you know, every time you click that I accept these cookies, Mm -hmm. uh, you're you're signing up to allow more and more of yourself to be to be studied, but you're not signing up for the cookies. They are just being assigned to you. That's the you know what I mean. Like one of the things that I'm writing about a lot lately is this effort by Apple to um to to make people aware of what they're signing up for. And of course, 
Facebook is losing its ever love in mind because it's the center. It's the center of their business. Um, and so one of the things that I like to focus in on is I always like, where's the money? The money's in the data. That's where it all matters. Yes. And it doesn't, you know, the fact that these companies like look in a very short amount of time, they own all of online advertising. The top 10 companies in the world are tech companies. The top company, most yes. valuable companies, yes. the top richest people are tech people. You, you, like anyone, you know, why are, why are people pretending that doesn't matter? Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, they just got here on their own like dime. They didn't get here on their own dime. And and we should not, you know, the, the consequence of that, especially in politics. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, look, I benefited from it when I was sure. in politics. We were able to create... Uh, because of the data that we had, we were able to create models of the mm -hmm. of the people who we thought were most uh, uh, receptive or potentially most receptive to our message. These right. companies could uh, get our advertising directly to those people. Um, mm -hmm. And now, you know, what we've seen is the manipulation of them to create using these same tools. You point out the Russians didn't hack our, our country. They used the tools that we you know, the most devastating things they did were using the tools that are available. That we built, that America built. Russia didn't build them. America right. built them. America did it. You know what I mean? Like, what's really amazing is how innovative America's been in this technological race, as they often are with defense and cyber attacks and things like that, and how it's then been turned about against us. The same thing with cyber attacks. We are the world's best player in cyber attacks, really. Now there's marketplaces that things we have built and pioneered that are now being used against us you know, quite heavily. And so all these tools, because we're an open system, because yeah, we're, right. um, you know, we're so easily manipulable. And what's very dangerous, and you know, this is what we're talking about, my mom, is how easy it is to manipulate people, not just via internet, but it's a combination of internet and cable and reductiveness and the splitting of the commonality of all of us that works beautifully in, in this particular medium and there's nothing like it and i what really offends me is when they say well we're just like tv we're just like billboards we're just like i was like there's nothing like this there's no ability to give a million if there's a billboard everyone sees it there's a tv ad everyone sees it not everybody sees the message david axelrod's going to get compared to kara swisher you know right. what I mean? Only David Axelrod's going to get it. And it's going to be, he, it's going to use data to like influence you in ways you don't even understand. It just crawls down your brainstem. And then you're also addicted to it. Yes. There's, there's, you know, that's the issue is people don't put together the addiction, the malevolence, the propaganda elements of it, and the repetitiveness of it. And it's all, for any person who studies propaganda, this is how propaganda works, you know, in the old days. And this is on, steroids. This is like propaganda on steroids. Exactly. And that's how you get QAnon movement or seven, or your yeah. mom believing that uh, uh, the election was uh, stolen. And 75% of 75% uh, of uh, Republicans saying that the election they was stolen. They sort of stolen. soft believe it. That's what they do. Yeah, I don't, I think if you press them hard enough, they wouldn't be, they'd be like, uh. but I do believe there's a, there's a core that has been radicalized just the way lots of groups get radicalized in this yes. country that is almost impossible to pull them back from it because now they have a constant font of information coursing over YouTube or Facebook or wherever they happen to read it. And so there's no end to their madness because they have always have a well to go to to drink their toxic water. Um, you wrote uh, in a piece, uh, a magazine piece in the Times, mm -hmm. 
back in 2019, Facebook as well as Twitter and Google's YouTube have become the digital arms dealers of the modern mm -hmm. age, which is a great phrase. Thank you. They were furious at the time. They have mutated human communication so that connecting people has too often become about pitting them against uh, one another and turbocharged that discord to an unprecedented damaging volume. And in a sense, you foreshadowed the events that we, we've seen in the well, last. Well, you know, I'm going to actually, uh, you know, I, I, when I wrote that, they were furious. They were like, how dare she say this? This is the Kara sort of crying wolf. And I was like, no, I'm just I, like, like I said, I wanted to be in the CIA. I can see where this is going. Like it doesn't take, it doesn't, it just, it takes a little bit of study. One thing I wrote, which was in, in, I wrote a piece. I kept writing about Trump and Twitter quite a bit um, in these columns. Um, and I, I, I had moved to Washington because my kids are here. So I'm living here for a period for as long as I have to um, in Washington. Um, and I wrote this paragraph. I go, it so happens in recent weeks, including at a fancy pants Washington dinner party this past week. And I've been testing my companions with a hypothetical scenario. My premise has been to ask what Twitter management should do if Mr. Trump loses the 2020 election and tweets inaccurately and f the next day and for weeks on that there have been widespread election fraud. And moreover, that people should eventually rise up in armed insurrection to keep him in office. Most people I have posed this question to have had the same response, throw Mr. Trump off Twitter for inciting violence. Few have said he should only be temporarily suspended to quell any unrest. Very few said he should be allowed to continue to use the service without repercussions if he no longer was the president. One high-level government official asked me what I would do. My answer, I would never let it get this bad to begin with. Mm -hmm. I wrote that in 2019, early yeah. 2019. That is like... Like I'm not a I'm not Nostradamus. I just am like look what look what he'll this is what he'll do. This makes sense to me of what he'll what he'll do. What do you make of this new news that he's creating his own social uh, media network uh, to communicate? Here's my only comfort: Trump stakes, Trump water, <laughs> business, business social networks is hard. So good luck, sir. I mean, do you think that he there? Do you think there are people in the tech community who would partner with him on the Some. theory that there's a big audience out there? Some and and they would do. I mean, Trump basically puts his name on things, and other people do them. When he does, when he tries to do them, he doesn't do them very well. Well, you know, it's not just that. First of all, you, when you have a social network, you actually have to have network effects. And one of the great things about Twitter, and also the negative thing, is everybody's there, right? And so you have the press. You have his fans, you have his detractors, you have all the politicians, you have him, you had him. Um, and so it's kind of, and then you have the bots too, like you need them too. And so it's this sort of weird echo chambery situation. It's very hard to recreate. And so if you have a one-sided conversation, which is all his fans going, go, sir, go, sir, go, sir. That's just a mailing list as far as I can tell, right? I don't mm -hmm. think it gets people going. I don't think it gets people on. And I think it, it you just have to monitor it as a reporter. I just don't think it creates the power that he's looking for. They're obviously investigating this right now, but he had more than a little to do with a crowd that uh, showed up in, on January 6th. I think he should be held criminally liable for what he did. I just, that's why he got, I mean, come on. He really did. Like he incited a crowd. He incited a crowd to act. And how, if he had, I just, you know, there's so many examples. It's not just, there were physical examples of him doing it at the speech, but I think his tweets leading up to it. That's why I kept writing this. I'm like, look what mm -hmm. he's doing. Like watch him very carefully. It was a long, he played a long game. For someone as as short term, you know, he's got like a like a like a attention span of a gnat. He does have play the long game. So, Cara, the tools are, all, as you point out, are only going to get more refined and more refined. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, and 
more sophisticated ways to pervert these tools. Sure. Um, there's fake deep fakes, there's videos, there's holograms, there's 3D. What do we do? And what are, what should I, Congress obviously is, is fishing in this pond. Yeah, I don't think they can do anything about the propaganda elements because we have the First Amendment. I think it's very hard to, to make any kind. There's two things. I think eventually there will be a country, uh, probably China, that's going to be running all on AI. Everything decision they make will be an AI decision. They will leave it to the AI to make decisions, including who should be in power, who's promising. You can tell who's going to be promising early on. You could do – these computers are going to be able to understand who is who is seditious, who is probably treasonous, who might turn on someone. You can use it for – I think China is going to be run on AI. I really do. I'm like, there's not going to be – there's no reason to make a human decision because humans are bad at it. Which is scary because, yes, uh, because a, yes. a, AI can – you know, you take a wrong turn and AI suddenly is running running the deal. It doesn't really take a wrong turn. It, but what happens is what do they – so I was talking to Yuval Harari who writes, you know, Sapiens and stuff like that. And he was proposing something that I, it's made me thought, think about ever since we talked about it, which is what if there's someone in China says this – or I'm to pick blank country – says this person, I'm noticing the activities of this person. I think they're going to turn on you soon. Do, shall I kill him today for you or shall we wait? Right? Like – the person has to the person has to act on the information but you could see a scenario like that very easily like where you really could tell who's promising who's not and, you're not making and, me feel better by the well, way. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. And so what do we do in the face of that? So we humans don't make good decisions. We shouldn't have humans driving cars. They should all be autonomous, right? Elon Musk is right. People are the problem with cars. Um, people are the problem with climate change. People are the problem with lots of things. And so the question is what we can do in this country is we can do a couple things. One is to tax them properly. I don't care what Elon Musk attacks Bernie Sanders, whatever. He, he needs to pay more taxes, all right? And even if he's going to use it, for going to space. Let us decide, not Elon Musk. Okay. That's one. Better taxes. Two is why don't we tax the right things? I'm, I'm really into good taxes. Like say tax online, um, tax online advertising and which is dominated by Google and Facebook properly and then use it to deal with media literacy, right? Like mm -hmm. use it for good things. Um, you know, and help journalism, like fund journalism with it, whatever. Do something like that. Put, um, put, regulations in place around data privacy, data and privacy that will actually protect consumers and give them a, 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 a chance and not suck every bit of value from, from it from, by these companies. Tax, not, not just tax them, but also just put regulatory things that they can and can't do. We can also do things like Reform 230, allow a little bit more liability against these yeah, companies. This is, right? this is the, provi uh, the provision that uh, exempts them from responsibility for what is transmitted across there. Now Trump's going to be like, 230 is the best, 230 is the best, because it protects <laughs> me from saying stupid shit like attack now the that capital. Now that he has his own network. Yeah, huh? well, yeah. whatever. Jason Miller's running it. Come on. How good could it be? You, you, we mentioned you have three kids. One is quite young, mm -hmm. but the boys yeah. are, are adolescents, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're 15 and 17. And, and what is your level of concern about how they interact with social media? I just heard the other day about a young girl who's the niece of a friend of mine who commit who attempted suicide yeah i'd worry more about girls i'll tell you the truth there's two issues around boys it's addiction like you know the the sort of trading and videos and porn and stuff like that this these are studies i'm not being sexist here this is just the way it is with girls it's a lot about um um looks and the way people you know the foma the uh self-esteem there's all there's going to be so many 
so many studies about this. And it's, you know, it just it just leaps. What's happening in the real world with magazines where girls never look quite right is leaping into the online space and is, as usual, amplified and weaponized, you know, so Mm -hmm. that's why that's it's just the same thing as, you know, looking at a Vogue magazine or whatever people used to look at. Um, But it's even worse. I think that my kids I'm not worried about because they uh, they have a pretty healthy relationship with the technology. I find they have, and I don't know why that is. They, I think they probably have two parents who are highly technical. Yes. Um, who do you under, my ex is. Your ex-wife was the chief technology officer at the administration when I was yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're, I think they seem to, I have, I'm, I think certain kids do okay, other kids do not do okay. And I think what's the problem is, is the addictive qualities of it are, really hard to overcome. The second part is you really do need to use it for your work. And this pandemic, if it's shown anything, has accelerated those trends towards telework, telehealth. Um, you know, there's all kinds of trends that are really going to stick to commerce, telecommerce, essentially. Yes. And so the that all- mentioned Jeff Bezos, Bezos did pretty yeah. well So, so yeah, pandemic. they all did. They all did. And I wrote a column saying they're all going to get rich, just so you know. Guess who's in the perfect position for a pandemic? Um, they, they, of course, would say they did it through innovation. I would say the pandemic helped them a great deal become even wealthier than they already were. Um, but I think that one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that is that we don't see it systemically. We don't understand that the addiction is part of the business plan, is part of the malevolence, is part of the innovation. And so if we don't address it as a whole thing, that's where we go wrong. And that's where they get us in that we don't, it's and not just addiction, it's addiction and it's also necessary because you can't do your job without having digital things. Mm-hmm. And so how do you deal with that? Like that's, and that, and, and also it's a part of your brain. It's part of like, it reformulates your brain. So it's not just you know, I think we probably all changed when we moved from farming to manufacturing physically a little bit, but you know, of course, evolution. Takes- yeah, this is more insidious, though. It is, and it's so you cannot put your phone down because of your work, and at the same time, the techniques being used to manipulate you are getting ever more sophisticated, and so you sort of find yourself in a position as you have to keep eating this crap in order to survive. But this, but it, there's there's lots of ways that y- you can mitigate that for sure. Um, my kids are pretty sporty. They get out more. Um, I, I don't know why my kids aren't so addicted to the phones, but they just aren't. I'm more addicted than they are. Nobody knows um, that tech world better than you. You've lived in it. Mm-hmm. You've watched it grow. You've watched the, the figures we now see as kind of yeah. mytho- mythological I met them early. people. Yeah. You've watched them grow from mere mortals into what they are. But what there is a kind of swagger uh, to all of them, mm-hmm. uh, that is kind of unique. I had a, an, a uh, I had a encounter with Steve Jobs when I was mm. working for Obama. That was uh, eye opening, um, and uh, I, I encountered some of that swagger. Yeah. Um, what is it about these these guys? And it's mostly guys. It's all guys. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about them that you know? causes them to be sort of um arrogant to, 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 yeah kind of a flip flip off the rules of gen, uh, of engagement that human beings normally have well here's the good thing that you think that like when you have uh freedom from consequence you can be very creative right except when you have freedom from consequence you could also be very damaging and i think 
on the plus side is when they do that, it can be, you know, eye opening. It can be like, I didn't see it this way. I didn't think of it this way. I didn't like imagine this could happen. And those are all good things. I think what happens is when they get very powerful and very wealthy and very like famous and everybody licks them up and down all day, they think every decision they make is like that. And so they don't imagine they are one wrong or two that there have consequences and they don't consider, they want to just move on to the next thing. And damage doesn't interest them, right? The damage they do. And so I always think about the famous move past and break things thing that thing was on the walls of Facebook. It has to do with software. Okay, let's just, I know every stupid tech person will tell me, I know it has to do with software, but imagine why they, why they, why they put that saying on the wall at Facebook. It doesn't, there's lots of other computer sayings they could have done, but that one to me was interesting. And why didn't they, when things were going left, when they thought they were going to go right, why didn't, why did they use the word break? There's never, it's never like, what was it, Obama? Change, hope, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Those, you pick those words specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Break is a word that's really interesting. Sometimes things should be broken. And sometimes you have to wonder, what do you do when you break them? Mm-hmm. Who picks it up? Who cleans it up? And that, they don't care about the broken. They just care about breaking. And that's why they get that way. Because they don't have to clean it up. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. I think you're right. We're going to run out of time here, but A, I, I passed over a whole bunch of your very uh, voluminous uh, bio, including mm-hmm. uh, uh, Recode and mm-hmm. a bunch of other stuff. You're now running a, uh, you, you now write a column for the New York Times. Yeah. You're doing two great uh Podcast Podcasts. Sway and Pivot. I just listened to your conversation with Stacey Abrams, which yeah, was, was uh, really amazing. a great conversation. Mm-hmm. You yourself have suggested at times that you might be interested in running for public office. I did. And I'm I wondering did. if you if that is still something that you play with in your mind and if so Only why? if I can hire you, Dave. No. no. Uh, we, we'll let <laughs> it we'll talk you. offline. All right. But okay. uh Tell me what, uh, tell me what you're thinking. I don't know. I don't. I actually, when I started doing podcasts, I realized it had a certain power. I was really, I'm very much interested in the podcast space like right now. And I think it has power that I didn't think it had. Uh, secondly, just because of circumstances of life, I moved to DC because my kids are here and I had another baby. And so things have changed. I was, I was really seriously considering running for mayor of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but I, they, you know, the mayor died and then yes. this new mayor is there who I think is quite a talented politician has her hands full i think yes lots of controversy she's got some problems like homelessness is just one of these intractable problems that she is trying to deal with and it's i think almost nobody can fix it right um i was just interested in the idea of civics i I think it's probably the same thing one made me want to join the military i was like you have to have a civic engagement so i feel like my contribution right now is convincing politicians to pay attention, convincing legislators to pay attention, calling attention to these issues. Um, It seems to have more resonance than I could have as running a city. Yeah, the word power, you've used it quite a bit throughout this. Mm -hmm. That's important to you. It is. Well, power, what is power? Like, and how do you misuse and use it? And so I think like, speaking of Stacey Abrams, I think she uses her power beautifully. Mm -hmm. She just, she, by the way, she self generates her power, right? Like she doesn't need nobody. I mean, she does, she has these groups she organizes, but it's, it's largely on her intelligence. And interestingly, I started, I interviewed Stacey Abrams way before she was famous. I did one when she was a state Senator, I guess. State state representative. Yeah. The the leader of the assembly in Georgia. And she was the leader of the assembly. And I was, I was looking, 
looking for someone who could compromise to write, to do a piece. How do you compromise in this era? And she popped up and it was six, it was a long time ago. And I did an interview with her and I thought, this woman is so talented. Like she gets it because she had a real intersection of tech and organization and this and that. And I thought she's going to do it her way the whole time. Like she, every time you think she's, everyone wants her to take a left, she takes a right. (laughs) And I'm like, I find her fascinating. I find her endlessly fascinating because she thinks like, I always joke with her. She plays Spock chess. Like, I'm like, she's very smart. In fact, you know, she, some, sometimes she takes a right when the left wants her to take a left. Yes. Uh, and that's how and she she's doesn't. navigated Georgia, which was, it's, I love it's her really. For that. Now she's going to make a mistake like everybody is, but I don't think she's going to make very many. I don't think she's going to make very many. And what's going to happen is people in policy are trying to reduce her to something and she's not reducible. And I think that's her real power. And that's how I like to go through life is you can't reduce me and you can't like, I'm going to do something else. And I think anybody today, if I leave you with anything, when you're thinking about computers, the only people that are going to survive the coming computer revolution is that attack, but they're not going to do that. Any job that's going to survive are people that can think creatively, right? Those cannot be digitized. Creativity cannot. Eventually, they'll get lots of creativity digitized. But there's a, there's a, there's a going left when you're supposed to go right, making unpredictable choices, really is it is the plot of like star trek he remembers he turned 90 today god william shatner's 90 today which is crazy but like that was his whole thing is he went left when people went right he didn't know you didn't know what he was doing and if you're gonna if everything can be digitized will be digitized the only things that can't be digitized are 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 creative thought by human beings and so i that's how i try to conduct my life like which way am i going to go here that no one that that can't be predicted that I think yeah. is by, by using my brain, my brain cells and stuff like that. And I think that's where you can survive in this, in, in the coming computer revolution that's going to. Well, you've charted a pretty uh, successful path so far. Well, I'm going to go to uh, professor next. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you were a, one of the great fellows at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Can I just say, can I, let me just end on these students. This is just my encounter with your students, but I think it's like that they, I worry a whole lot less because of young people that I encounter today. I have to say it gives most things don't give me hope just talking to these students. And I meet a lot of you and my kids, my, my kids themselves. I feel a lot of, they will, the, the challenges we have ahead, AI, a country run by AI, climate change, the, the solutions that are required, transportation, how to live in a more uh, um, peaceful way with each other, with our differences. These are massive problems. Like we have left them with them really. Yeah, but you know what? They're not daunted by them. They're not. They're, They're not. That's what them. I was going to say. They're not daunted by them. They I, aren't. That's the reason to do the work. They're not all doing TikTok and dancing. Because it's it, they, they inspire me every day to think that, hey, you know what? The future could be better. Yep, exactly. And so I better. feel really good. That was a real, thank you for letting me do that because I thought that was, <laughs> thank you. that really ch- changed me. Thank you for doing it and thank you for doing this. No problem. Uh, and and uh, we will be reading and listening to you with interest because there is power in that platform. Indeed so, there is. Kara Swisher, great to be with you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, 
visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.